Hi, I'm Colleen McNamara, and you're listening to my dad on All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. That is B.B. King. I normally don't lead with that when Grant comes on because I try to intimidate him with my karaoke song that at some day when I do sing karaoke for the first time and I sing, I sing Toby Keith, right, he'll be shaking in his, in his go-go boots. But joining me from uh, the Pacific Rim of the world um, is Grant Newsham. Grant, how are you? Oh, fine, thanks. All right. Well, you sound very composed tonight. You must have got back from the go-go bar a while ago. You've had time to compose I did, yourself. yeah. Yeah, I've had time to uh, decompress. That, well, let me tell you, we all know from time in go-go bars in the Far East that they will certainly compress you. Mm-hmm. That's right. The um, Somebody mentioned, I mentioned that you used the term go-go bar to somebody, and they said, you know what, I need to go to a go-go bar <laughs> I need to go to a go-go bar. It's been a few years for me. And I said, and uh, for those of us who have been, for those of you who've never been, um, to go to a go-go bar in one of the one of the epicenters of go-go places, um, Alangapo, Kinville, Thailand, Pattaya Beach, uh, Bangkok. Um, I've never been to a go-go bar in Japan because they wouldn't allow us in. Um there were these guys standing at the front of the place that we went to walk in, and they stepped in front of us and said, it's full. And we said, those people just walked in. And they looked at us, and they said, it's full, though. And then more people walked through, in. And we said, it's not full to them? And they said, no, but it's full to you. So I don't know if that's ever happened to you, Grant, but uh, um, do you want to give like uh, a synopsis of what a go-go bar actually is? Could you explain, like, you walk in and, and what do you see in a go-go bar? Well, I would leave that to others. I'm starting to feel like, uh, you know, these days that, like, when we were lit younger, remember, there were these old people who would talk about going to speakeasies. <laughs> and uh, I think I'm starting to feel like that. But it's, I don't, you know, I'm not you know, an encyclopedia on the, the subject. But oh, you're you, not? You go in and there's... No, but you no, I do have a go go happen in lifestyle. But that doesn't mean I hang out at go go bars all the time. Uh, but it's you know, it's what you'd expect if you I think turn on the lights. It's just you know, a lot of music and a lot of girls and people jumping around. Uh, but it does that's the the thing. And it uh I think the specifics may vary from place to place, but you know, that's you that know, is, it isn't a great it isn't a great surprise. I think when you break it down to its components um, you know, it's not a very complex uh, equation. What are its yeah. components? So alcohol, certainly, cheap alcohol or relatively cheap alcohol, uh-huh. uh, loud American music being sung normally by Asian people who don't have an accent when they sing, but then aside from that, can't speak a word of English, which is somewhat unique when you're like, hey, that was awesome. And they look at you and they say, no habla in Japanese or whatever language, Thai mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, that's kind of odd. Um, and there's normally a fair amount of prostitution in these places, at least the places I've been in. I'm sure you go to much more cultured places. Um, but that's a, a tend to be a cottage industry when, you know, somewhere between five and 10,000 Marines and sailors show up. That's no small part of business. Um, and then, uh, and then 
normally in the go-go bars I was in, there was certainly stripping going on in them. Yes or no? Oh, well, I go to classier joints than you. So you don't so have I'm, strippers I'm so, in yours? Not so much. I'm sort of the Sinatra. Of, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, like classy joints. But the... Uh, Oh. Yeah, no, I, I don't, you know, hang Me, out in these places. So but every once in a while, I get to get invited to to those places that that never live up to the the expectations, of course. Well, that's because um, you leave too early. <clears throat> that could be, but uh, maybe I just don't have that uh, the vibe. Well, but, yeah. Uh, well, Mac, what time do they close? They don't. Okay. No, <laughs> you're thinking, of course, like Southeast Asia sort of stuff. I guess. Hello. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, up north it's classier. There you go. In northern yeah. Pacific, it's classier. Um, I have an email. Mac asked Grant what he thinks about General Austin as the next Secretary of Defense. Now, the the quote I'm seeing in, much in the news today about General Austin is saying, "quote ISIS is a JV event." Um, do you know anything of General Austin, and do you have uh, any kind of uh, opinion on uh, his uh, supposed nomination? <laughs> I know I know of him, of course, because I've, you know if you read the news, you'd of course been aware of his you know when he appeared on the scene as a commander uh, over in CENTCOM, and uh, you know I but I don't know really enough about him to uh, have a uh, really any sort of informed opinion. You know, and I'd certainly be inclined to, you know, give him a chance if, you know, if he gets through the confirmation. Uh, you know, you look at how many defense, you know, uh, secretaries there have been, um, goodness, over the last 10 years or just even the last four. And, you know, he's there's been some better ones and there's been some not better ones. And, you know, so. You know, it's hard to get for me. It's hard to get too excited about any given person unless they were just manifestly, you know, the wrong the wrong person for the position. You know, so I said, if it you know inclined to you know, give him a shot, you know, just how much worse could he be? Would be though. I think some of the the recent guys that in the Trump administration have actually done a pretty good job. Um, but it does bring to mind, um, you know, I did notice a picture of him. He like a lot of. Um, Officers and senior officers today—they look like they look like Marshal Zhukov himself when you look at their chests. You know, they um, and it uh, which and then I but I'm reminded this was uh, probably I forget when it was maybe I don't know 2013-14 when there was that famous picture of it was like five Marine four stars sitting around uh, like a couch at the commandant's house. Yes. Um, they were camouflage uniform, and I sent a, a message to a, a a young captain I knew, and I said, "Well, how many wars did these fellows win?" And he, goes, and he sent back, "Sir, considerably fewer than five. <laughs> and you know, my point is that you know, can't we find somebody who wins wars? Or uh, so, but you know, that's uh, been an argument probably forever. But the you know, I would like to have somebody you know who uh, has a sort of recognized track record of success. Uh, and, you know, so, you know, if, if it's a military person or a civilian, I don't really care. I just want somebody who wins and, and can get us get us organized so we can take on the, the PRC. Uh, well, and that's, whatever that's it a, takes, whoever it is, I don't, I don't really care. If, if General Austin's the guy to do it, well, that would be perfect. Um, if, if not, well, 
we'll find out sooner rather than later, I think. Well, and the question, um, I think, on, and a very general question, and we'll, we're going to talk about this because I'm going to play, you're going to hear Grant's either brilliant or not so brilliant um, comments here. And I will be the judge of that initially. You can be the judge of it subsequently. But, um, uh, but we're going to talk about that. And that is this question. The United States, for decades now, has subordinated has subordinated China's industrial, military, and commercial – well, industrial, commercial would be synonyms, I think – espionage for the sake of this economic relationship. And I think the question for the Biden administration is, um, are you going to believe your counterintelligence people or are we going to go back to uh, Wall Street's influence over the federal government saying, you know, we're not really here to spread American values. We're here to make money and we need you as a partner to do that. So to me, that's a pretty fundamental question. And you've been pretty consistent in the course of the last four years saying that. You know, the, the real estate guy from Queens is the first person that's had the United States stand up in the Western Pacific on its hind legs and look the Chinese in the face and say, yeah, that's not really going to happen. And so do you have any sense of uh, of, uh, you have any sense of which direction and how this is going to play out? This this fight between, you know, counterintelligence people and the intelligence people and, and essentially Wall Street. And uh, our desire to do what everybody wants to do, which is make big money in China. Uh, if, if I had to guess, I would put my money on the people with the money. Then uh, that's Wall Street and the sort of the, the broader U.S. sort of business community that that wants to do business with or in China. That they have shown that they have got influence that that you and I really can't quite conceive of. Um, over sort of America's political class, uh, its academic class, you, you name it, um, that it's the it's amazing how little it costs, in fact, to buy off a U.S. politician. Uh, it takes a very small contribution. Um, but I, I'm afraid that, you know, I'm not optimistic about this. You know, I would certainly like to be, but I, I just don't see it. Um, you know, you look at some of the statements that have come out from leaders of U.S. business uh, associations to the to the effect, well, you know, we have to be in China. Uh, we have to do whatever is necessary to get us into China and to allow us to do business there. And never a peep about human rights, or even worse than that, is the actual military uh, threat to to the United States. Uh, then Wall Street speaks for itself, you know, absolutely falling over itself to get into China. And China has played that card well. You know, just recently they've talked, they've promised to open up and to allow in some of the key Wall Street banks into China uh, in a more uh, freer way, in a sense, that they can now own the majority of their operations there instead of having to have local partners. Um, but that doesn't mean you're any less under the control of the, the, the Chinese communists. And Wall Street is fought, they haven't fallen. I don't wouldn't even say fallen for it. It's in the sense that like a like a sea lion that sees a piece of mackerel, he doesn't really fall for it. He's that he's all in. You know that's all. That's they. I don't think they give the matter just a second thought. Uh, so that's you can see that um, I'm not too optimistic about it. You know I would like to be, and it is good that we're getting more attention played to 
really the, the Chinese threat and also the Chinese subversion that's going on uh, in the United States, but also at the same time, that expression Chinese threat or China threat is it's under attack by the uh, really the pro-China camp in in America's uh, elite class foreign policy class. You know, it's, it, they're claiming people who use that they're being racist and alarmist, right. etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. Uh, so it, you know, I don't, I'm not optimistic. The um. Now, I was going to play these clips. I don't know that they won't take too much time. Well, let's uh, let's just try one because I think sure. mm-hmm. this this was some fascinating stuff and made headlines around the world because um, many people had never ever heard this stuff. So this is at the start, and um, and and the two guys that are that are part of this um, from uh, from DCI, right? Um, is Bill Ivanina, and uh-huh. uh, and then from the Department of Justice is another guy, and his name is John Demers. Okay, so they're the two people, and the Wall Street Journal reporter, her name is Aruna Viswanatha, if I, if I don't, don't mm-hmm. butcher her name too much. So this is them talking about the Department of Justice's China initiative that began two years ago. And, and, and so I... I I think it's really amazing. And this is one of the headlines that came out of this when Demers says that because of the prosecutions, a thousand Chinese, quote unquote, researchers left the nation. So listen to it might be 90 seconds of this and individuals, mm-hmm. including um, a Chinese intelligence officer. And then at that time, John, you said um, that the cases taken together paint a, quote, grim picture of a country bent on stealing its way up the ladder of economic development and doing so at American expense. And now that, you know, it's been two years, there's obviously been a, a series of additional cases um, from the Justice Department. And the FBI is opening a, a counterintelligence case every 10 hours or so linking to China. So maybe let's start off by stepping back a little bit and um, getting your assessment of what has all of this law enforcement activity, um, what kind of impact has that had? Has that picture you painted two years ago um, changed at all? Well, thanks very much, Arun, and obviously thanks to all the folks at uh, Aspen Cyber. I heard Carlin's voice before as well for uh, for having me on, for having Bill on, which is the harder pull. But uh, I think, you know, from our perspective, uh, what we have in the past two, three years, managed to disrupt a significant amount of malign Chinese activity. And I can come back to that. I think we've also managed to raise awareness through our cases in the private sector, in the public, in the university community, all of which goes to helping us disrupt that activity uh, because we really can't do it without their uh, cooperation and their efforts and their stepping forward to help us. And then third, I think it's allowed us to... uh, Uh, further our cooperation with our international partners and other uh, free market liberal democracies around the world. And I think we're going to need that as we uh, work together to uh, try to figure out what the new relationship should be with uh, China. On the first point, on on the disruption point, you know, we talk a lot about our cases and obviously each one of those cases uh, represent uh, economic espionage, political espionage or other uh, malign activity that has been uh, disrupted, you know, in that instance, oftentimes with the with the arrest of the of the individuals involved, uh, and then later their convictions or, or their guilty pleas. 
But uh, I think, you know, what we've also done recently is taking a more programmatic approach. And so if you look at the cases, uh, just as an example, over this past summer, we arrested five or six uh, researchers who were here from China on visas who were affiliated with the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese military, but who hadn't uh, disclosed that affiliation, had hidden that affiliation when they applied for their visas. Those five or six arrests were just the tip of the iceberg. And honestly, the size of the iceberg is one that I don't know that we or uh, other folks realized how large it was when we began down that road. But between those five and six arrests, uh, between the you know dozens of interviews that the Bureau did of other individuals who were here in similar circumstances, and then ultimately the closure of the Houston consulate to disrupt both foreign influence activity and economic espionage activity, uh, more than a thousand PLA-affiliated Chinese researchers left the country. So our prosecutions were just the beginning of that, but they allowed. All right, Grant. I want to let you comment on that. Um, that's those are some amazing numbers. And the the thing that he says was, you know, these prosecutions were just the tip of the iceberg, and I don't even think we had a good understanding of how big the iceberg was. Um, your thoughts on your thoughts on what you just heard from uh, uh, John Demers of the Department of Justice? Oh, it, it's good. I would suggest that if he didn't have a good understanding of it, because he was hiding in the bathroom for twenty years, uh, this has been going on for at least twenty years, more actually, and it's been obvious what's happening. And you know, it's no surprise to anybody who followed it. Uh, I actually happened to. Um, and so, but it's nice to see the attention being paid to this, you know, it's better late than never, at least. And, you know, the, the numbers he describes, I think these are, these sound right. And he would certainly know better than I, but the, um, you know, a thousand researchers just, you know, leave town once it's clear that the, the, the feds have their antenna up. Um, yeah, that, that's true. The inroads into academia, uh, it's just incredible into the, the business community. And, and keep in mind that for a long time, and maybe even a little bit today, the, the thinking was, if you remember, was, well, I'm going to, you know, get mine, you know, get my Chinese money. You know, there was considered absolutely nothing wrong with this uh, in business circles, academic circles, and even in the political class. Uh, you know, get your... Uh, you know, get get your Chinese money. Get and Silicon Valley was hooked on it as well. You know that you'd hear, oh, when when are we going to get to sell out to some Chinese money? That's going to come. Um, but this is, as I said, it's been going on for a long time. And you know, I remember in around 2002 or three, uh, the FBI brought a guy to Tokyo, and he spoke to a Japanese group, and I was asked to come and attend uh, about the the Chinese espionage threat, uh, particularly the commercial threat. Um, and nobody really took him seriously. Uh, and before that, I had worked for Motorola as well. And we had a you know huge problem with the Chinese stealing our stuff. Uh, and it's, you know, this has been Chinese strategy uh, for, for decades. And it's a way to build their so-called comprehensive national power. Um, sort of steal your way to the top, but not just steal, but... You know, make no mistake, these guys can innovate, you know, just like, you know, Yankee ingenuity was often just taking British technology acquired by uh, questionable methods and making it better. Uh, so th that has been really national uh, policy uh, by the Chinese. But what the, the U.S. official just said, um, absolutely 
correct. And, you know, there's no reason he wouldn't uh, tell the truth. But also, <coughs> excuse me, keep in mind that, you know, this is really only the FBI and Department of Justice is really focused in a serious way on this only in the last few years. And as I said, this has been going on for decades. But once again, you know, it took, you know, President Trump to be the guy who actually, you know, sort of turns the ship around. Let's hope it, it stays turned around. Uh, and they, but it really is a, a big iceberg. And this is just getting getting started. And it seems from some of the, the plea deals in the cases that have been reached that the Americans are maybe letting the uh, the, the Chinese thieves off too easy. Just my impression, and there may be some uh, reason for doing it that, that I'm not aware of. Uh, but just say my impression that the the penalties seem a bit lighter than than one would imagine. I want to ask you about a comment um, that gets made in terms of um, the geopolitical fight that will take place, and one of the interesting things that gets said is. You know, uh, if you're a developing nation, um, the offer of Huawei technology at a dirt cheap price is probably more than you can pass up Um, because with it comes access to Chinese markets. So once again, we see the um, the blackmailish way in which, you know, the Chinese use their economic power, which which most people, you know, would say that's real, you know, real politic right um that is the way it works and uh that the united states uses its economic power much in the same way to influence you know the difference between one is a totalitarian state one is a democracy but that 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 developing nations third world nations won't be able to say no um and that what was uh interesting is that you know the about face of the uk and the european union relative to huawei i'm curious about your thoughts um does that make sense to you in terms of, yeah, if you have the resources, you can look at a different option. And if you don't, so we should expect to see Chinese influence, you know, operations expanding in third world countries, blah, 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 blah. Your thoughts on all that? Um, well, yeah, the, there's a certain logic to it all. Um, you know, you've got, say, so you've got territory or markets, potential markets. And, you know, say you're a company and there's a, you, there's a, you have you have your range of markets, and suppose you decide that you're only going to go to the ones where they have five star hotels, uh, and well, you know that leaves a good chunk of the sort of the potential sort of market field open, and that's what you see a lot in globally is that uh, for some reason over the last I don't know twenty thirty years or so that Western companies American ones included have, have really haven't been willing to go to the what used to be called the third world or the developing world uh, and and try and do business and there's they have all sorts of excuses oh return on investment the infrastructure this and that uh, but it used to, if you're not getting out and sort of pounding the pavements and looking for customers, well, don't be surprised when the the god that your competitor who is willing to do that uh, goes out there has the market to himself, and if he's halfway intelligent, he's going to make these people an offer uh, that looks pretty good. And in the absence of any competition or any other offer, well, of course they're going to say yes. And you throw in, say, some um, extra money into the whoever the officials or uh, account, whoever the officials are into their accounts, 
and it makes it even better. You know, so they've the Chinese appear and they are offering up something that a, a you know a country needs, and they present it in in good terms, the way a used car salesman will, will get you into that, you know, 67 Catalina, you know, for, a, you know, low, you know, low down and low monthly payments. Um, but they'll get you the end, but they, there's nobody challenging them. And that's where the, the U.S. government and business should be operating together more with, you know, looking at this as a, as a battlefield of sorts, but they, they haven't really got their act together on this. So go to wherever it is on earth and, you know, the most remote place. And I'll guarantee you, you're going to find Chinese businessmen, uh, but you won't find um, Americans there. You know, th- there used to be something called the Yankee trader, you know, in the olden days, these Americans who would, you know, they would sail any everywhere and you would see them all over the place uh, in the remotest parts of the world selling stuff. And you don't see that these days. It's the Chinese are the equivalent of that. Um, so you you can understand why the, the Chinese do what they do. Uh, they, the, the field is open. And, you know, if it's, say, it's telecom that you're selling, say telecommunications, well, countries need that. And, you know, if a country wants to get modern and, you know, just, uh, you know, be able to people talk to each other more easily and build industry, build their businesses a little bit. Well, you've got to have that sort of thing. The Chinese are offering it. Nobody else is. And being the Chinese, they are, of course, going to uh, really cheat the customer, you know, squeeze everything out of them they can and ultimately get them dependent uh, on them. But in the absence of alternatives, well, you can understand uh, why what hap- what is happening has happened. Uh, but you, you got it got it right. No, but as I say, you just you think of how many say graduates from I don't know Wharton of these the high class MBA programs. How many of them say, you know, I want to go make my living in Nigeria or Angola? Uh, none of them. You know, they all want to go work for McKinsey or such and such and make a million dollars consulting on you know their three years of professional experience. Uh, but anyway, that's another. another <laughs> issue. Uh, before I, I, you know, I ask, I, I put some more audio here. Um, uh, you, you're no stranger to to the Aspen uh, series of uh, of discussions. Uh, how long do you go back the, to <laughs> uh, your at least your own? Um, I don't know subscription or when you started paying attention to these forums. Oh, I've, I've never been invited to one, and I think I'm very low on the invite list. Um, but I, I'm familiar with it, and you do follow it um, It's at some point just to see if anything useful is going to come out of them. And you're, you do get a sense of uh, sort of what the, the popular opinion is in the, the commentariat. You know, are they, how are they looking at China, uh, for example? And, you know, it's a good, a good way to say to get a sense of the, the thinking, and you're always looking at it, wondering if it's ever going to sort of think the way I do or, or recognize that the, really China as a threat, etc. And so it's useful to hear the people that, you know, hear, you know, the attendees, hear what they say, because they are often uh, people who, you know, are known. Uh, so I but I guess I've been following it for a while, partly because it's Aspen and it sounds cool. Uh, but you do get to so get a sense of things if you pay attention to it. So a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. Um, let but me. If yeah, they haven't invited me yet, um, so <laughs> that, that's uh, you know that, that's still on the. Right. To well, be, just to just so you know, when I get invited, I'll bring you with me. 
Okay. All right. The uh, this is uh, you know, I, there's a comment I want you to comment on about an American, um, an American answer to Huawei, and it appears in this that we don't have that yet, and and the world needs for us to have an answer to Huawei, and I want you to listen to this series of comments. You had brought up the international cooperation piece of this as being important, and it seems like the Trump administration has had some success in. Um, convincing other countries to not use Huawei um, gear in their uh, telecom infrastructure. Um, looking out over the you know next year, two, three years, um, maybe Bill, this question is for you. What do you see the world um, sort of dividing up more into a section of the world that does use Chinese technology and telecom infrastructure, and a section of the world that uses that relies on Western technology, or um, do you see this shaking out in some other way? Now, Bill is the counter-intel guy. A great question. I think both of those, I mean, I look at this both geopolitically and economically, you know, so there are going to be parts of the world and the globe where uh, they can only go to China and Huawei because they're at 30 cents on the dollar, right? So we've seen China now pivot to South America and deep parts of South America because there's a a prime market there. I, I think China now has realized that we called them out and there were, there is now literally a geopolitical battle space with telecommunications and hardware and Huawei that they're battling. They thought for sure they owned Europe. That's not the case anymore because of the collaborative cooperation at multiple parts of our government with multiple parts of European governments. And I think with the pushback with the EU, which we never thought we would see, has now occurred. So I think now what's the new battle space? Africa, South America, Indonesia, you're going to see China trying to continue to build that that network where they have, you know, called depth diplomacy, where they offer people critical infrastructure, a.k.a. Huawei, for free with like a 99-year lease with, you know, they, they're basically unable to pay it. I think you're starting to see more of that. And maybe in acquiescence, where they'll play in the backyard fights in Europe, uh, in parts of maybe Western Europe, Eastern Europe, where there's some fringe areas. But I think that geopolitical biospace will continue. I think the race will be, and you've heard this, is what's going to eventually be the United States' answer to Huawei? You know, the quicker we get to a solution of a U.S.-based answer, the quicker we're going to have more uh, quivers in our um, arrows in our quiver to be able to fight back on what our answer is there, I think. But geopolitically, I have to give credit to uh, all of us, not only in the U.S. That US government, international community and U.S. business, to, to push back a little bit. And we're starting to see now a change in China's behavior on Huawei. And that also incorporates some of the indictments that DOJ and John have done, because it's all in the same bucket of, um, of information, intelligence, and facts, which really changes the behavior of, of the Communist Party of China. John, do you have anything you want to add on that? Uh, well, it's going to be very difficult. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, you know, telecommunications is sort of the key, and obviously during these times of everybody working from home has become even more so the way we run our lives, which is why we focused on Huawei and on 5G technologies. I do think that we uh, were able to change the conversation with Europe over time uh, based on the evidence that we were able to show them. I also think that the Chinese changed the conversation by their actions in Hong Kong, by their actions with respect to the Uyghurs, by their now, perhaps, you know, whatever they're thinking of doing uh, with respect to China. And so there's been a backlash uh, on, uh, and also really the way that the Chinese over 
played their hand with respect to COVID assistance. And I think there was a backlash in Europe and, and a realization, and this is, I think, you know, going to define the relationship with China going forward, a realization that those of us in um, liberal democracies in free market economies just don't share the same values at the end of the day with the Chinese Communist Party. And that those differences in values have consequences for the people who live uh, in, those, in those different countries. And I think the big challenge of the future in dealing with that difference in values will be China's economic power and China's willingness to use that economic power in order uh, to push its policy interests. So when it comes to Huawei, the big challenge in some of these developing countries, but even in developed countries in Europe is not, oh, Huawei is 50% cheaper than the, than the alternative. Not only might Huawei be 50% cheaper because of the government subsidies in China, but the Chinese government will uh, change it, the level of foreign direct investment into your country. The Chinese government will change your company's access to the Chinese market based on your decisions to choose Huawei or not choose Huawei. And we've seen that happen uh, in Europe and we've seen it happen in other countries around the world. And that makes it very difficult for those countries to uh, stand up uh, despite the security risks that they're aware of. But despite that, I think, you know, we've made significant progress and I'm, I'm sure that the new folks will will continue to push that. The um, So, Grant, um, I, I like that term debt diplomacy, and but I, I don't think you hear it articulated, I think, as well as as, as I think those are a couple interesting um, uh, little sound bites. And especially from the, the, the second guy, John Demers from the DOJ, uh, where he says um, – where he talks about uh, China uh, um, in this debt diplomacy, the first thing they do is they unleash foreign investment in your country. So all of a sudden you're seeing this 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 flood of money into your country that is 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 building and, and buying and, and and all kinds of things. And then the second piece is access to sell into their market. So it's this it's this incredible boom um, economically. Um, give me your sense of, or you can comment on that stuff if you want, and then give me your sense of where do you think the world is relative to this push and pull, right? Is, do we want to see the Chinese as who they are and what they're really headed for? Or are we still so drunk on money that, um, that we're, yeah, we know that's out there, but we don't really give a shit because there's too much money to be made. I think there's a 50-50 chance at best uh, as to which way this will go. Um, If it was uh, another Trump administration, I think we could have some pretty good confidence that uh, we will uh, continue to see China as an enemy uh, and an adversary enemy, take your pick. Uh, But if it's a Biden administration, then I'm less confident than I uh, would be with a Trump administration. Uh, that's, and I think this is an epical sort of period we're at, where we are seeing an, a, an oncoming threat. It's on the horizon, if not closer. And we still can't decide if, one, if it's a threat, and two, if we are all going to, sort of the, the civilized nations are going to actually cooperate and, and resist, or are some of them going to try to cut deals, or some of them going to stand by and sort of hope somebody else gets hammered and they can pick up the pieces. Uh, I don't know. 
you know, I don't know how this is going to play out. Uh, the, the gentleman's comments were, you know, they're, they're good and they're, they're worth listening to. And I think he uh, captures things uh, correctly. You know, he, he should have noted that it, uh, one thing is that, you know, the British were sort of hell bent on keeping Huawei as a customer, keeping Huawei in their systems. Uh, just until fairly recently, and right. it was really only the Americans, Mr. Trump, uh, threatening to uh, pull out of our intelligence sharing agreements with them and threatening other punishments. And suddenly the, the British came around. Um, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, also got, quote, the, the, the Chinese virus. And I think that may have changed his uh, view of things. But one thing that I think the speaker did really he, he was very useful is that he pointed out that um, once you start doing a lot of business with China, once you accept their investments, uh, that if you then you, they've got leverage and you're dependent and they will use that threat of uh, cutting off their uh, investment, cutting off their money as a weapon. And you, you see them do it. it it's a, it's r- so routine that it's, it, that it's easy to predict what's going to happen. It happens to poor countries. Uh, it happens to Australia uh, most recently is right. the, the, the test case where China is trying to scare everybody else. Um, well, one sort of interesting point when they talk about Huawei is that um, they've been – Huawei has been Huawei from the beginning and just nothing but a bunch of thieves um, and the, and spies. And there's a couple sort of good anecdotes recently is the uh, – in. The, Huawei built a sort of a data center for the for Papua New Guinea uh, there, and they built this place. And it's um, the thing is entirely uh, what bugged or subverted, so the information all goes ex- directly back to China. Um, it hasn't opened up yet because somebody, I think, I'm not sure who, but somebody figured out what was going on. Uh, in the Organization of African Union at their headquarters in Addis Ababa, it was revealed a few years ago that uh, the, the Chinese built sort of uh, tele- infrastructure, uh, Huawei, of course. It uh, sent everything back to China like every evening. Um, so it, this really, you really can't un- overstate the extent to which uh, Huawei is sort of symptom as uh, symbolic of China's Chinese debt diplomacy, sort of uh, espionage efforts, and really commercial warfare. And its commercial warfare is ultimately intended uh, uh, to dominate politically uh, from the Chinese perspective. So uh, this is a, a serious problem, and there isn't really an al- there hasn't been an alternative, and that's a huge problem. So the Americans have been hoping that Ericsson. Uh, the Swedish telecom company and Nokia, the Finns, will make up the difference. And even Samsung, the Korean company, has been mentioned um, as uh, sort of alternatives to Huawei. Um, unfortunately, Ericsson also does a lot of business in China. Ericsson's uh, CEO has said recently that he doesn't think uh, leaning on Huawei is that good an idea. Uh, Nokia sim- also does business in China as well. Um, and Samsung is coming under uh, South Korean government pressure. It's I'm feeling that the South Korean government is going to dominate it, uh, if not outright control Samsung and Samsung and the Chinese, the South Korean government. This one is, of course, very close to China. Uh, so we're going to have to come up with some alternative. It'd be nice to see an American company uh, in there. Um, Ch- Japan's NEC has been mentioned as a, a possible candidate. Uh, as well, but it's it's hard to see. You know, we're, it's really late in the day. You know, but at least people right. are paying attention. And he, and as, as how we're going to get 
into Africa and Latin America? I don't know, because the Chinese have really gotten a head start in there and really are uh, embedded uh, into both of those continents in, in ways that are uh, really disappointing. But they've um, gone out and done their, their legwork. And we fund it all, of course. The um, all right. I, the next clip I want I want to play for you um, is talks about um, hold on American academics, American university and, and American universities, which um, which is I think really interesting because the push. So when the DOJ and our uh, and the DNI begin to get after. Chinese influence operations with graduate students doing research and grants funded by the Chinese. The pushback is this is race oriented, right? Um, this is racial intolerance. And, and then as you peel through that, what you find is American researchers double dipping in money. And, and what they do is they, they, get federal funding and then they go to and they get additional Chinese funding, which they don't report to the university, which pleads ignorance. And the, the universities say, we don't, we didn't know this. So let me, let me play this clip and then you can comment on it. We're almost out of time. And before we ended, I did want to ask you about some of the criticism of the China initiative um, you have gotten from academics and others in the university research community that, view this as a little bit of um, a racial racial profiling exercise and sort of so a lot of these are administrative or process crimes. Um, I know that you've said um, all, all along the way that the Justice Department and the U.S. government is focused on the actions of the um, Chinese government and not in Chinese individuals um, and that some of the defendants have been not of Chinese descent. But um, in hindsight, are there things that you wish you had had done differently about this? What about even just naming it the China Initiative? Are there things um, you would have wanted to do to kind of address this criticism? I, I mean, I, honestly, I, I don't think so. I mean, we, we knew that this was a concern and we we're very careful about the way we talk about this problem um, because, you know, we don't want it to become about the Chinese people. We certainly don't want it to become about Chinese Americans here in the U.S., and as you know, you know, if you look through our defendants, you'll see a great mix of defendants when it comes to uh, ethnic backgrounds who are very much focused on behavior. And when we talk to companies, I know Bill does the same. When you talk to companies, we talk about focusing on behavior and never using ethnicity as a, as a risk factor or something that those companies should, should be looking at. Same thing on the university front. Now, on the university front, I think the main criticism has been centered on the cases involving academics, really American academics, who um, didn't disclose foreign sources of funding on their U.S. grant applications. Uh, and in some cases actively hid the fact that they were uh, also working for the Chinese government or for institutions in China and often getting funding for the same research uh, that they were getting, that they were applying for funding for from the American government. I mean, to that, and, and yes, so the charges have been uh, making false statements to the U.S. government and grant fraud. Um, are those administrative violations? I, I don't know. I mean, th those go to the core of integrity at an academic institution. And an academic institution is all about disclosing sources of funding so that people who are reading your research can 
figure out with, you know, how, how to read that research. And that's true regardless whether your funding is coming from the alcohol and beverage industry or whether your funding is coming from the Chinese government. The focus is on disclosure. And our cases there, I think, reflect a desire to tailor our approach to the values of those institutions, which are transparency and academic integrity. And those professors who haven't disclosed the sources of their funding when they've been applying for grants have violated what are really you know, university and academic values uh, as much as US laws. So um, I think now there's a much greater awareness uh, in the academic community of the importance of uh, honest disclosures, but they knew that at the time. And, but also at the university level of having compliance programs um, that uh, are adequately tailored to ensuring that your professors and you as a university are not making false representations to the US government. And our point here is, you know, once you make those uh, disclosures, let the US funding agencies, let your university decide what they're comfortable with you taking money or not. But if you don't disclose it, they can't decide that. And that's what we saw in case after case. And honestly, it's why the universities have been cooperative with us in case after case, because they know that they can't make that assessment if their uh, professors and researchers aren't being honest with them. All right, let me just, I just want to play one more little clip and then you can comment on it. But I, I found this pretty fascinating um, in terms of, um, uh, and this is another, this is another little soundbite about, about academics and universities. We're almost out of time. And before we ended, I did want to ask you about some of the criticism. Oh, hold on. Efforts um, to sort of counter Chinese technology have not been as successful. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the, the TikTok ban that was um, not upheld in the courts, which said that uh, the U.S. government might have exceeded its authority on, on that front. Um, at this point, it might be in TikTok's interest to wait for. Uh, you know, let me I, I won't even bother with that. This academic thing, Grant, um, sounds like they're playing stupid. They know the game they're playing. And then the DOJ comes rolling around and they're like, oh, we didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what they were doing. This is a process foul, blah, 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 blah. It sounds like we're double dipping. We're making a lot of money doing this. And we didn't really care if you know, because we're not in the business of American values either. I'm curious your thoughts on this. Is this a cottage industry? And now everybody's putting their hands in their pockets saying nothing to see here? Uh, pretty much, yeah. This is a bunch of really well-educated, credentialed, pedigreed people acting like five-year-olds who get caught, you know, stealing cookies. Uh, that's all it is. Uh, you know, suppose, you know, that it was, um, say, it was South Africa uh, who was, you know, back in the apartheid era that was, um, you know, doing the same thing as China's doing, you know, getting – American professors and academics to work on behalf of uh, projects to strengthen the apartheid regime, uh, to strengthen South Africa's military. Do you think anybody would have said, "Oh, there's no nothing wrong here. This is okay"? You know, it would. You know, you're just racist. You don't like South Africans. Uh, no, th this is really an example of what people will do when they smell money. You know, they will come up with all sorts of excuses to explain it away. Uh, and to get their their share of it, and th this is the whole thing is entirely disingenuous. It's, it's just ridiculous to listen to it. 
you know, this went about the night use the 1930s, you know, says the Nazi Germany had been doing the same thing. Uh, I bet you would have heard people probably saying the same thing. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, if you ask those people, well, we'd never do business with the South Africans or, or with Nazi Germany. But when China comes along, which is qualitatively a regime uh, worse than any of them, uh, then suddenly it's what's the big deal? You know, they're glad to take money. They excuse it away, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's really it's, you know, human nature, really smart people acting like children. Uh, who got caught trying to come up with excuses for why it's okay, why it's not a big deal, why it's the government's fault for catching them. Uh, but once again, you know, who was the first administration to actually crack down on this? Uh, and it, it was, as, as I noted earlier, for, for many years, this was the thinking was, well, you're just lucky if you can get a, sort of tapped into Chinese cash somehow. And that uh, isn't this, it's different now. Hopefully it stays different, but I'm not impressed with any of the excuses that are being trotted out. Uh, people, it's conveniently overlook the nature of the regime that they are doing business with. And the, that you just listen to what the Chinese say for a week. Just read the, the translated media. And it is full of, of venom directed towards the United States, threats to America, talk of inevitably destro uh, eventually destroying the United States. Uh, so what's the justification for these uh, geniuses to... Uh, do business with a regime like that. Well, so, I, I want to uh, – let me ask you a question, uh, and, and this is kind of a scope question, and, and here's an email, and then I'll turn the email into a question. Listening to this discussion, and I always love Grant coming on, in spite of him being a go-go bar, bar attendee, I am surprised when I heard this, and I listened yesterday. Five or six get prosecuted and a thousand left. Those numbers are amazing. And they're talking about that being the tip of the iceberg. I also heard later in this is that the influence extends to the state provincial level that the Chinese are interested in. Is that true in terms of Grant's opinion? Let me add this to that. Uh, one of the things I heard was, uh, or saw the other day was Australia recently enacted a federal law that allows the federal government to terminate any agreement that a province has made with a foreign government, blah, 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 blah. And it's because I want to say that um, one of the provinces, you know, had an ag created an agreement with China relative to the Belt and Road Initiative. And so the province entered into this agreement with China to develop a port or road or whatever, and the federal government said not happening, but or wanted to say not happening. They did not have the laws on the books to do that and to withstand a court challenge, so Australia enacted that law. Um, Grant, this paints a pretty gross picture in terms of the level of penetration of Chinese influence operations. Um, would you say that after we actually got the pressure washer out and washed all the dirt away and saw it, it'll be much greater even than that? Uh, yeah, I think it will. The, the email describes things perfectly. Um, the, it gives you a sense of just how easy the Chinese had it for so many years. There were pretty much no restraints on anything they did. 
uh, and it would would go down to the the lowest to the lowest levels really uh, you know and provincial state levels have been mentioned uh, the example uh, the, the, that the person's uh, referring to is Victoria state in uh, in Australia they signed up for the belt and road initiative while the the federal government in Canberra is uh, trying to stand up to China. So here you have one of the states getting in bed with the Chinese uh, while the federal government is trying to take a very different approach. And you, you see the it's the, the Victoria case has been very well reported. Uh, and there's um, been some Chinese uh, agents of influence who've worked on the, the uh, provincial state governor. Uh, and he's, you know, either sort of craven or else not very smart, but he got involved in it all and he sees nothing wrong with it etc cetera, etc cetera. you it's been a just just the other day in america there's been a, some couple stories on uh the chinese uh, influence operations in california at the and they go down to find us find young politicians uh, who are just getting started and this is even at the local level people they think might have a future and they'll um work on them and it describes in some detail the the activities of one Chinese a female operative over a number of years uh, to get some to get in close to some well-known uh, and some less well-known uh, politicians in California but also elsewhere in the United States uh, so this the, the really the scale and scope of the the Chinese influence uh, and intelligence operations are really are breathtaking you know, they've got the people and the money to to spend a lot of uh, effort on it and nobody's been trying to stop them very much until the last few years. And it's not just in the United States. Australia has been mentioned, um, and that's been actually very well reported in the last few years. Uh, but elsewhere, you know, UK, Japan, uh, Taiwan, just you name it, the Chinese influence operations uh, is uh, it's just a standard feature of what they do. And you see it really in just about every country on Earth. Uh, so this is is pretty bad. You know, we're just looking at talking about the United States and maybe a couple other countries, but it, it's much much broader than uh, than you can imagine. And even and just taking the United States, you know, we've uh, really have let ourselves get uh, subverted. And, and it's you say at the ruling class level, but you do also find it at state government uh, levels as well. I think uh, was it Secretary Pompeo was actually spoke out about to a group of governors not too long ago, warning them of Chinese influence operations uh, like this. So it's uh, they're coming at you from all directions and all levels. So uh, at least we're finally some people are finally waking up. I hope we stay uh, woke up. Uh, I hope we stay woke. Wow, that's a pretty trendy yeah. term you're using. The um yeah, yeah. um. Uh, another email. I'm listening to discussion. I'm curious, based on historical animosities in the region, do the Koreans and the Japanese look at Chinese influence and influence peddlers the same way, or do they have a much more difficult time in that part of the world? Interesting question. Hmm, yeah, the, the China, let's start with the the Japanese. Um, at the, at the root, you know, I think most Japanese, really, they instinctively are leery of or else don't like the Chinese. Uh, and it's not like they go around all day hating the Chinese, but there's something that they, they don't like each other. 
And but what you find, and if, for example, if you look at the public opinion of polls in in Japan, it'll in the questions like, do you have bad feelings about China? And they ask the regular person, the, the, the answer is like 90%, yes, we do have bad feelings. But if you were to ask people in the political class or the official class the same question, you might get 35% who say that. And the others would say, well, not really. They're, you know, we, they'd actually be kind of positive. And keep in mind that the Chinese have been doing political warfare influence operations against Japan for decades and specifically targeting the political class, the official class. Uh, you know, they it's, it's the usual ways, you know, invite them to China for, you know, study trip, give them hospitality of all sorts while you're there. Um, and then there's money involved in this and that. And you, it happens to Japanese officials, too. So it's. Uh, you can see how they've gone after the elite class to try and uh, win them over a bit. But in terms of the, the average Japanese, there's no love for the Chinese. Um, and But that elite class is where the, the risk is. But there are, of course, as I said, say, I don't know, 35, 40 percent um, who do see China as an adversary. But the, the Chinese have had some uh, success uh sort of subverting um, a good chunk of uh, Japan's elite. And the Japanese business class, of course, is, you know, mostly like our business class would love to get in bed with the Chinese and stay there. Uh, the Koreans are a little different because they um, live right next door to the, the Chinese and have sort of in, been in between uh, both Japanese and Chinese for over the, the centuries. So they've always seen themselves as friendless and really pushed from every direction. Uh, so I think with the, towards the Chinese, there's uh, also is a, a great leeriness on the part of most Koreans, uh, but at the same time, a recognition that, well, they're here and we got to, you know, we have to figure it out. But there, there's no love there, but except for the Moon administration, which genuinely, I think, does love the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but in general, generally speaking, with the, the Koreans, you know, they, by their geography and their history, they look at things a little differently than the, the Japanese do, who've at least had an, an ocean to, or a fairly sh small ocean to hide behind uh, from the Chinese. So, but the political warfare efforts in both countries by the Chinese are just longstanding uh, and, and effective. Uh, but and but there is some – yeah. And constant. Uh, yeah, it doesn't stop. Yeah, it, it, yeah. God, it's continuing action. Let me read just just some notes, and and you can comment on that. And then I have another question for you. Um, these are things that I just wrote. Just wrote notes. I wrote down from listening to that about forty five minutes uh, discussion. Uh, theft by any means of five hundred billion in lost economic efforts on an annual basis by the Chinese from American companies, right? Um, that there is a continuing education of both academics and private business on the consequences of dealing in this one-sided manner with China. And that a lot of what we face is ignorance. A lot of these university administrators and a lot of private business owners simply don't understand the way the Chinese weaponize this information and the research that they steal as well as the private 
technology that they steal. And we are trying to help make them understand. You kind of scoffed at that. Um, the the five hundred billion a year annual transfer. Do you think that's about on? Do you think it's more than that? And your thoughts on this? Um, this thought of you know we have to educate, and that's why Europe ultimately turned its back on Huawei, um, uh, starting with the Brits and then the EU. Uh, what say ye to that? Uh, I think the the five hundred billion is probably in the ballpark. Uh, depending on how you calculate it, and sometimes the it annual. ranges from two, yeah. and that's annually. Mm-hmm, that's right, you know, and you know, sometimes it's two hundred, and sometimes it's five hundred billion, but it's it's a huge number. Uh, you know, you think about it. You know, once you have, say, you're a company, and once you have lost, you know, suppose you make, say, cell phones, and say you have that you're the number one in the world, right. and suppose you lose your technology, and suddenly you've got a two or three competitors in China who are making the same stuff cheaper, and you lose your market share and you go out of business. So all of that money that the Chinese are making is money you're not making, uh, and that's just one example. And it. And the, the profits continue for years and years, and somebody else is getting them. So I think those figures are actually, uh, I think, in the ballpark, you know, if you just stop and think about it. Um, you know, someone else has taken your money-making thing, and it, it adds up, and it – but you, it's also important to think about it in the long and it may be even worse than – than we think. Um, in terms of trying to do something about it, you know, the, there's a point to the uh, the idea that well, people just don't know what the risk is, and there is some, you know, you know, and I'm of course pretty cynical about what uh, Westerners will do when they smell money, but there is some truth to this: is that a lot of it is that people don't, you know, if you live and breathe the subject like some of us do, then it. Uh, then it's, you kind of think, well, everybody must know. But if you don't, then you really aren't aware of what the, the Chinese MO is or even that they're, that they're a threat. You know, if you, and so that actually can be something that uh, people don't know about. And explaining to them, well, well often it can make a difference. Uh, you know, I've seen that when you just lay out what the risk is, what the, uh, what the losses are going to be. And then offer up what what are you going to do about it, and a reasonable solution to it. And so awareness can get you can go a long way towards uh, reducing the threat. It doesn't eliminate it, but it does reduce it. Um, and then also you can demonstrate that it, there's actually an economic benefit, a commercial benefit, to being more careful towards towards your rivals. And so if you explain it the right way, it is surprise you will get plenty of people who understand it. And oddly enough, it's really the, the, the actual frontline businessmen are the guys who seem to often understand it more than anyone. Um, but once you get up to a sort of a CEO, CFO level, then it, that seems to be where a lot of the res- resistance comes from. Uh, maybe having to something to do with a perceived law, sense, a sense that you might lose short-term profits. But the, the, the working level that I think people do understand it better, but it does take an effort to explain it realistically and offer some re- say reasonable solutions. Um, and if your solution is just, well, we'll turn it over to the lawyers, well, you might as well give up. But that's uh, another discussion. But also you do have to have some penalties in here for not being careful. And that's where the, um, you know, so that has to be part of the equation uh, to 
to my way of thinking as well. So what, what the, the gentleman said is, you know, it's true, but I just offer a little, say a few additional things and some context uh, Got it. to Got it. it. Here's another question for you. Um, ask Grant about expat Chinese in other Asian countries that control over 50% of the private capital, the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, etc. Do they support the Chinese leadership? And then um, they all have a secret network, it seems, and control a lot of money. Vietnam is also in that group. Uh, yes, that's um, that. It's a good question. It's an important distinction to make because those are long-standing Chinese communities in those countries that, uh, over the the years and generations, have you know have come to pretty much dominate the the economic the commercial sectors. Uh, in those places, they will cooperate with the Chinese Communist Party when they have to, um, particularly if there's some vulnerability uh, to their business operations or to their relatives in China itself. Uh, and the Chinese, the, the communists do make an effort to they, to uh, lean on these people, uh, though sometimes with more success, sometimes uh, with less. And often this has a often has a there's a function of how much. Uh, they, they've got on them, you know, say in terms of how vulnerable the, the overseas Chinese people are. Um, and, uh, but also those Chinese communities that they do, because they do dominate, tend to dominate the commercial sectors in their respective countries, that it creates a lot of local resentment. And every once in a while, this sort of erupts in um, rioting and violence against the local Chinese. And you see it not just in those countries, but you'll see it in uh, the South Pacific as well, uh, where it's a different sort of Chinese. It's often more recently arrived local shopkeepers uh, who uh, cause uh, some of the resentment. And those people being more uh, sort of recently arrived from China, usually having relatives in China, uh, those two are seen as a sort of a potential sort of tool by the, the Chinese communists. Uh, for exerting influence overseas. But that, that question of the, the Chinese diaspora, uh, both the long the long standing one and the more recent ones, that's it's a good one that uh, is it does get some attention. It can always use more because they it is the Chinese do see it all as one part of their uh, sort of comprehensive national power. Um a kind of a broader lens picture how do you expect and i'll use the i'll use the term uh the timeline five years so it's been spans beyond anybody's presidential term in the next five years what do you expect to see in this struggle between an uncertain um uh free nation conglomerate and this Chinese thing that is seeking to uh, usurp many of the um, many of the the much of the infrastructure that has created the post World War II world that, that we live in today. What do you expect to see, Grant, um, in the next five years? Do you expect to see, you know, this kind of fifty-fifty thing continue, where nations are torn between? you know, Chinese 
what debt diplomacy and understanding you know the true true nature of China as we've seen it operate during the COVID event. Um, what do you expect to see in the next five years? Oh boy, that is that's not a, that's a hard question. I'll, 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 I'll it I'll is say. It, it kind of is, but it's more. It's, it depends on what time of day you ask me. It can be depressing because <laughs> uh, the 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 Chinese have really got their claws into Africa and Latin America. And those are big parts of the the country, uh, the world, uh, and throughout sort of South Asia, Central Asia, they're just incessant in sort of getting established there. Uh, the South Pacific, you know, they're just always turning up and you know, they're very active there. It's almost everywhere you'd look, they're, they're active. And it's, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's not imperceptible, but you don't quite see what's happening is that eventually it's, you know, it's this parasite sitting up on you and it's eventually going to reach the point where it's sucking so much stuff out of you that you, you can barely move. And they were sort of getting surrounded um, as it is. And it does seem as though the, the United States, Australia, Europe, to a degree, that the freer countries have kind of woken up. But will they be able to push back uh, enough? Uh, I, I don't know. You know, as long as we keep, as Wall Street keeps funding the Chinese Communist Party, I really have no confidence at all. But if you can somehow cut off that flow of funding, uh, to the PRC, that would give us a sort of a break. And but it's going to be up to to the United States if it's going to be able to articulate a uh, sort of a reason for why it needs to take on the the PRC uh, and in all parts of the globe and and then do it and get some the powerful, the better countries to join in on that. So I'm not sure we're going to be able to. Uh, get our act together enough to sort of resist this sort of very wide ranging Chinese uh, sort of inroads that you, you see them making just all over the place. Uh, so I'm not sure, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I do wonder sometimes, you know, we're of course, we're talking about bolstering our military and uh, this and that, but, you know, you could get, we could get our military just right. But if we don't get the commercial and the psychological and the political end uh, addressed as well, that having a really good military isn't going to do us uh, all that much. So it needs to be, you know, uh, sort of a, a much more comprehensive approach on our part. And, and I don't say so I don't quite see that we've uh, are willing to do that or even have a um, if, certainly if it's a Biden administration, I'm just not sure the stomach is there or even the a perception of the need to do to really take on China. There's an idea where we can just work it out and reach an agreement with them to share things. But that isn't how it works with the other side. Uh, so I'm I'm not optimistic about uh, what, what's coming here. You know, it's you know, I always like to be. Um, but with the with this one, I just don't know. You know, you, you see looking at what the Chinese are doing and looking at what we're doing. And I'm not sure who has the upper hand uh, right now. Um, partly it's self-inflicted on our part, but uh, I'm just not sure. But five years out, you know, I'm, uh, say, a little pessimistic uh, this time of day at least. Would you say you're less pessimistic than you were four years ago when we sim- we were not even having this discussion? We're simply denying that these problems existed and you had guys like Warren Hatch saying these tariffs really concern me because I'm a free trader 
you know, and uh, Orrin, if you think this is three tra- free trade, I have some swamp land. I have some oceanfront property in Iowa that I'll sell you. You dope. Um, but that's what you heard consistently when these tariffs were even considered. So are you less pessimistic than you were four years ago? Um, probably about the, the same, I think, if you calculate it. Because back then we were doing absolutely nothing. Um, if it had been another four years of what we were doing, uh, I think we'd have probably – I'm not sure we'd even be able to move now. But in those four years, the Chinese have at the same time, they've been active. So even though we've stood up to them and made some very good strides, the, the Chinese have been very active and their military's gotten bigger and they're just to say deeper into all of these places uh, that, that I've mentioned. You know, you used to hear of the, the old Maoist strategy of the, you know, the countryside, you know, taking the countryside first and then getting the cities. And it, it almost seems as though these like the Africa, Latin America, South Asia, Central Asia, South Pacific, that these are almost the, the countryside. Uh, you know, you get your presence in there, and then once you're set up well enough, you can exert more power elsewhere, or influence and power elsewhere. And uh, you, know, you, you wonder, you know, just what's going on. And then they also see China as uh, the outer space as the high ground. You know, are we doing enough to challenge them uh, there? I don't know. Cyber and electronic warfare also get mentioned. So they, the Chinese are. Uh, they've made rapid advances themselves in the last four years. So if, but thank goodness we've at least sort of woken up and have done a, a say more in four years than has been done in the previous 40. So, uh, you know, we, we've at least got a fighting chance, but I'd call it a fighting chance. Got it. Um, another question for you. Um, the, there's legislation that's waiting president Trump's signature that talks about delisting Chinese companies. Uh, that don't meet American and international accounting practices. Have you seen that? Uh, your thoughts on that? Because those are the, you know, Al Capone went to jail, not for murder, for tax evasion. Um, so many t- times the mechanism uh, to actually fight somebody in a very formidable way comes through our financial sector. Um, mm-hmm. Have you seen that? And uh, do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, yes, I followed it, and I think my understanding is that the the law says will say that um, if a company doesn't meet say the accounting standards for three years, uh, it's, it's my understanding. I'm so depressed to hear that I didn't read the specifics, but I thought that there was a three year period that uh, we have to wait before delisting. Um, you know, you see that, and you realize just how much. Uh, the Chinese have bought off our ruling class. Uh, if you know, if they get a three-year grace period to b- keep breaking the law, um, then you know, and then you might do something. Um, it should be you have three weeks to get this in order, or else you're gone. Uh, but when you saw the three-year uh, bit to it, you saw this is just a, a sop to Wall Street, uh, the donors, and. It, Republicans and Democrats both to thank for this, and uh, it, that part was maddening. So you're right; it's they're very vulnerable and uh, on this front, the financial front. Uh, but we're not playing our cards as well as we should. All right, uh, what are you writing about next? Uh, I think um, I have something I think should come out uh, about the the fentanyl uh, carnage. You know, all the people who are dying 
uh, as, as like 37,000 Americans died from it in uh, 2019, and all of it comes from China, and the Chinese aren't doing anything about it. And my, so I've written a piece on that. But my point is that it's, um, you ask yourself, well, what has America's ruling class done about this? Uh, the short answer is nothing. Uh, so that gives you some sense of how the Chinese have gotten their money's worth uh, with our with America's elites. Uh, so that's it's a real cheerful article, of course. Uh, but that that's uh, but that should come out shortly. I think. Got it. Where where will we see that? Which one of your platforms uh, uh, will be, you? Oh, this will just come out in And magazine. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. No, I mean you look at that the scourge that is fentanyl, and you look at you know I mean it cannot even be handled, you know, unless you danger and endanger your own life. And what law enforcement people have to do. When it's even suspected of being, you know, part of something, um, yet they pump that into this country as, as fast as they can get it here. And uh, and as you said, I mean, it, 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 you know, much like much of the rest of this nefarious activity, we will be, we're happy to look the other way because of the money that's to be made, you know, and what and uh, and and I think the overarching theme for this, and, and there was an editorial or an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal recently that China still enjoys, you know, great favor in the United States in one place, and that is on Wall Street. And that here this uh, Wall Street, you know, the mo- you know this bastion of American values and conservative, conservatism is neither of those. It is a juggernaut bent on profits and damn everything else. And so they paint that picture pretty clearly in 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 the op-ed. I don't know if you saw that, but uh, mm-hmm. but that is that that seems to be the fight. And you know, it'd be interesting to sit in the Chinese OPT, which which says, "Look, you know, our theme for all of this is 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 people's greed, and they will they will gladly right subvert whatever they say they believe in publicly for their own personal greed." And so, I mean, to that end, I mean, there's a story in the news this morning that Representative Ilian Omar of Minnesota paid her husband $2.8 billion, million of, and which was 70% of what her campaign paid out, paid his consulting firm. I believe another term for that is embezzlement. But when it's done legally and all the boxes are checked, what do you say? Congratulations. You just stole two point eight billion dollars or million dollars from people that contributed to your campaign. Well done, and it's amazing to watch out in public. But it is subordination of values for personal greed, and whether you're talking about academics, whether you're talking about Wall Street, it is what the Chinese OPT draws up consistently, and then watches it play out. Pretty interesting. Yeah, they've. Uh, you can't blame them if you've got an idiot sitting across the tape, the poker table from you. Then why not take advantage of it? A greedy, so, a greedy idiot at that. That yeah. makes it. That makes it easy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right, Grant. Uh, first of all, always appreciate you staying up, and uh, uh, you know, enjoyed the visit. And, and and I'll tell you what. I mean, I I'm a I'm a huge fan. I I haven't I, I haven't known about them as long as Grant has, but. You know, the Aspen Institute puts out great stuff, and they have lefties and righties on, so the discussions tend to be I, – I find them very fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I also yeah. enjoy the fact that they're in long format. They're not like a eight- or nine-minute interview. They, they, they have 
I think substantive people, you know, who who are moderating these things, and and they, you know, they last for about an hour, sometimes longer, and and I think you really do walk away from them better informed. So I'm a, I've, I've become a huge fan of their work. Yeah, they are, they they are hard to characterize because you, you can't just dismiss it as you know the Davos crowd, but you will find some good people there who uh, sort of talk sense. So it it's uh, I agree with you on that. All right. Now, if they would only invite me to ask, them, <laughs> well, then we'd be then then, hey, be even nicer to them. Let me tell you, Grant. You you, you know the, the phoenix is rising in the Pacific Rim because <laughs> you, at one point you were like banished right to the land of misfit toys <laughs> and now the world has pivoted to you know to your to your strong suit so at some That's point true. you know we'll see you testifying before congress i doubt it uh, no i've got i have a sort of a cocktail party knowledge of the subject so oh. the guys who talk before congress they know their stuff <laughs> <laughs> i don't know there's a lot of people in fact i got an email yesterday from a marine out in 29 palms telling me how much they enjoy uh, and how much they've learned uh, from you uh, making us smart um, about the Pacific Rim, and I, I echo that. I mean, I uh, our discussions, uh, and uh, you know, just I mean, even just I mean, your knowledge relative, which is I think stunning for most people. The Belt and Road Initiative in Australia, done at the provincial level, and so when we talk about the penetration of the Chinese into different nations. Well, Australia's federal government did do that. It was a state government. Yeah. One, uh, just a last thing, a funny story. Um, I was invited, um, like last, it was uh, October before last to Darwin, Australia to speak about some Darwin as a defense location. And, um, and at this event and at the event, the, the keynote speaker was the, the, the Northern territory governor and he was on it just after he finished his speech. He was going up to China to drum up business. So I gave my pitch. And, and afterwards, I was invited. Um, I was interviewed by Australian Broadcasting Company. And they, they, only, they didn't ask me about the military stuff. They asked me, what do you think about the, the governor going up to China? And I said something like, well, it's not a very good idea because of this, this, and, you know, they're going to cheat you and this and that. And within like minutes, they had put this online on, on Australian news saying retired Marine Colonel calls the Northern, Terror Gover- Northern, Ter- Northern Territory governor an idiot. And uh, which uh, that, that's not exactly how I was a guest. So I'd like to behave better than that. But they, um, but, but yeah, the, that's uh, the Australian media is is known for rough and tumble. Yes. Yeah, they they it was it was yeah they said just about the way I described it. But, uh, <laughs> so they haven't invited me back yet. But the, uh, so well, there you so go. Anyway, hey, there's okay. no such thing as bad publicity, Grant. Just remember that. Okay, well, got it. All okay, right. well, thank you. Right, so okay, out here. Okay, bye bye. That is Grant Newsham here on a Tuesday morning. Um, yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, I. Uh, I've always, you know, enjoyed my visits with Grant, and and like most people, he has certainly made me smarter as I view the Pacific Rim, and uh, and but um, yeah, no, the Aspen Institute thing, uh, uh, the Aspen Institute thing, to me is something that you should book bookmark and go by there every once in a while because you'll see things like this that catch your eye. I saw this is actually 
um, quotes out of a paper, and one was uh, that that one was that quote in the article, and then I saw Aspen Institute, and I said, "Oh, let me go check it out." So um, no, I, I and and then just you know, again, I think podcasts have become so. Um, popular in the country i mean when you when you look at the wall street journal today and all their top articles are there's an audio version that will tell you about you know how people listen and the fact that they you know they're they're busy and whether they're walking or working out or whether they're driving what what companies like that are doing is finding ways for people to consume their content and so uh yeah i would recommend it to you i would recommend it to you so, there you have it. A Tuesday edition. Done. If you're just tuning in, um, I'd tell you about my birthday in hour one. And some other stuff. Chuck Yeager. Uh, holiday decorations. You can't find them in Southern California. Yeah. New Secretary of Defense. Nominee. Allegedly. Uh, General Austin. Um, uh, controversy surrounds him as uh, supposedly the quote ISIS is a JV squad uh, comes back up and no doubt thrown out there by people that are his distractors but uh, again I don't see the Senate right be pretty interesting little confirmation if the Senate of the United States will not do for General Austin what they did for General Mattis. Why? Because he's a black man. Yeah. So, not that you won't hear that, because you will. So, anyway. Um, yeah, we talked about that. So, yeah, the optics of that would not be very good. On a Tuesday... Don't be afraid to go change somebody's life. And uh, I'll leave you with some thoughts on the valley of the shadow of death. Again, if you know people that are struggling, sit down and talk to them about the ideas in post-traumatic winning. And, and, And I say that because David did not go into the valley of the shadow of death unarmed. He did not go fight Goliath unarmed. Okay, He did not go fight Goliath with medications and hope that he could win. No. Right? He went and he fought him with a weapon. The 23rd Psalm says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So, when, when life forces you into the shadow of the valley of death, you go down there, with a rod and a staff and a compass and you fight your ass off to get the hell out of that valley. But that's not the way that we do it in the United States. We'll medicate you as you kind of grope your way through and you can come talk about your fucked up shit as often as you want to. That doesn't get you out of that valley. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you. But the if you stop at the armory that is post-traumatic winning and you get a rod, and you get a staff, and you get the compass, you can walk your happy ass right out of there. Yeah. So, don't be afraid to do that. On a Tuesday, 
All Marine Radio. Out. <laughs>